welcome to another episode of Seekers and Scholars, a podcast from the Mary Baker Eddy Library in Boston. I'm Krista Seidgram. I'm stepping in as host of today's episode. Normally, I'm the producer of this podcast on the other side of the glass here in the studio. And I'm here with Jonathan Eater, who is our usual host of the podcast. Hello, Jonathan. How are you? I'm doing well, and I'm so pleased you're the host. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little break for you, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And in addition to being the host of the podcast normally, Jonathan is manager of programs and scholarly engagement here at the library. So we're very glad he's here. And we're also joined in the studio by Christopher Evans, who is professor of the History of Christianity and Methodist Studies at Boston University School of Theology, just down the road from us. So thanks for joining us in person today in the studio. Krista, it's great to be here. Thank you. (laughs) Very excited for our conversation today. Chris is the author of a number of books about the history of Christianity and Christian figures in the United States. But of particular importance for our conversation today, he recently wrote a book called Do Everything, the Biography of Francis Willard. This came out in 2022, published by Oxford University Press. So today, we're going to be taking a look at the overlap of the lives, work, and values of two American Christian women leaders. One is Frances Willard, and the other is our organization's namesake, Mary Baker Eddy. Both women were, you could say, Christian reformers in different ways. And to frame this conversation, I'll start us off with an interesting data point. So in 1932, a nationwide poll was conducted for two months by the National Council of Women and the Ladies' Home Journal. They invited American women to weigh in on who, as the New York Times put it, they considered, quote, the 12 leaders of their sex who have made the most valuable contributions to American progress in the last 100 years. Of all the women— Mary Baker Eddy emerged as the highest vote-getter with around 102,000 votes, and Frances Willard was not far behind with around 90,000 votes putting her at fourth on that list. So these two women in 1932 stood at the summit of recognition and regard in American culture. So almost 100 years after this poll, why is it still valuable for us to look at the lives of these two women? Well, I think the ideas and the work of both Willard and Eddie, have a far-reaching resonance over time. Their names are not as familiar to the general public today as they were at the time of that poll. But for us here at the Mary Baker Eddy Library, it's always valuable to understand the context and the surround for Mary Baker Eddy as she went about her work, her mission to lead the Christian Science Movement. And Willard was such an important figure at that time. You know, that list that you were referring to of those 12 women that came out as revealing who American women thought were the most significant women leaders of the previous 100 years, that list is filled with names that are more recognizable, I think, to the general public today. The, on that list was Susan B. Anthony, mm-hmm. Jane Adams, founder of Hull House, Helen Keller, Harriet Beecher Stowe, Julia Ward Howe, Amelia Earhart. But when you look at Willard and when you look at Eddie, they were, of that list, I think, some of the most prominent Christian reformers of their time, mm-hmm. of men and women included. I think we can learn about both by being in conversation about them together. Hmm. That's fabulous. Thank you. Before we get too far along, Chris, can you share a little bit about just 
who is Frances oh, Willard? Oh, I would love to, Krista. This, <laughs> this, give us a look at her life and, and what, what she was known for. This gives an author a chance to talk about their book. So <laughs> I, I would love to talk about Frances Willard a little bit. When Frances Willard died in 1898, she was, by most accounts, the most well-known American woman living in the U.S., but also probably one of the most recognizable women internationally. The basic way that Willard is known today in most historical accounts, she was president of an organization called the Women's Christian Temperance Union, or WCTU, as it was commonly known, which by the time Willard died in 1898 was, by most accounts, the largest women's rights organization in the world, with a membership close to 200,000 women, with chapters in almost 40 countries. That is fascinating. Can you tell us briefly what the temperance movement was? Can you give us an explanation of that? Generally, when one refers to the temperance movement, it refers to a variety of, of religious and political campaigns that were geared towards either curtailing the use of alcohol or leading to, to total prohibition of alcohol, uh, whether through moral suasion or through legal means. So when people talk about the temperance movement as a historical phenomenon, they oftentimes use it interchangeably with the word prohibition. Mm. Part of the significance of Willard is that when you look at the issue of prohibition or temperance, it's often seen in a very narrow way, oftentimes caricatured with people who were very stoogy or out to deprive people of having a good time in some way. But Willard was not like that at all. She was a very progressive woman in her thoughts. She had relationships with some of the major political leaders of the day. She was an influential leader in a major third party in American politics called the Prohibition Party. And probably above all else, she was very much an active member of her own Methodist church, which during Willard's lifetime was the largest Protestant church in the United States. And Willard, who was an individual who dreamed of being an ordained minister, but at the time that was not an option open to most women in the country, really put her life's work into working for women's causes. She had a career as an educator at one point. She was a dean of uh, what was then known as the Women's College at Northwestern University in Evanston. She worked as a revivalist for probably one of the most famous revivalists, Protestant revivalists of the 19th century, Dwight Lyman Moody, based in Chicago. And she was uh, a reformer who, as I indicated before, not only was involved in temperance, but also in a variety of other issues uh, related particularly to women's rights, including women's suffrage. I use the slogan, Do Everything, because it became her motto. Part of what Willard emphasized to women was things won't change until enough women stand up and are willing to be counted. Mm. So the idea of do everything was to encourage women to take up any and all causes that were of importance to women. So one of the things the WCTU became known for by the end of the 19th century was the creation of public water fountains, uh, funding water fountains oh, in, in the U.S. 
one of the nicknames for the WCTU was the Cold Water Army. That was a name that was often applied to a lot of temperance organizations. But the idea that one, uh, instead of drinking beer or wine or hard spirits, drink water. It's better for you. Oh, I see. Uh, And I think one of the things about Willard that made her very unique for her time is she believed very fervently that if women were going to get anywhere, they had to publicize their work in the media. So very much like the, the Christian science movement, the WCTU had a very effective publishing wing, a weekly journal called The Union Signal, which focused on Willard's exploits. And during her lifetime, Willard traveled to every state in the U.S., and she went into big cities and small towns. She spoke to a variety of different organizations. She was a very well-known public face. And one uh, commentator noted that the three most famous Americans at the end of the 19th century were God, Buffalo Bill, and Francis Willard. (laughs) And even in the years after her death, it was pretty common to see her portrait in public schools and public buildings in the United States. Mm. That's cool. And I learned, thinking of her and her prominence, I learned in preparing for this episode that she was the first woman to have her statue placed in Statuary Hall on Capitol Hill in the Capitol building. That's right, in 1905, Mm -hmm. uh, so just seven years after her death. So we've got Francis Willard and we've got Mary Baker Eddy. So what links the two of them together? That's a great question, Krista, about the links between them. You know, when you're researching Eddy and Willard, you find links in all these different sources. You find it in Chris's book, for example. You find it in our archives. You find it in other articles. You find it in a lot of different contexts from that time period. So they are linked that way. One source that I've really been grateful for is a book that recently came out by Amy B. Voorhees. It's called A New Christian Identity, Christian Science Origins and Experience in American Culture. And part of that book really identifies the interactions between Mary Baker Eddy, Christian Science, and social movements of her time, including the Women's Christian Temperance Union and Francis Willard. So I'd like to just quote a little bit from Voorhees on Willard. And Eddie, she writes, quote, This linkage between individual religious reform and societal reform seems to be why Eddie urged her students to keep their methods distinct from social reformers whose modes might work against their own. As she wrote to John and Ellen Brown Linscott, who married after John's career as an agitator or social activist in Francis Willard's ranks, Christian science cannot be carried as anti-slavery and temperance are or have attempted to be. Agitation injures our cause. We should always be Christ-like. His voice was not heard in the street. Eddie generally admired Willard, and there is interesting evidence that in the late 1880s, she attempted to get John Linscott to recruit Willard to lecture on Christian science. That's the end of the quote from Voorhees. Uh, Lynn Scott was a follower and student of Mary Baker Eddy. And we have that letter in our collection. And, and it's fascinating to, to, to look at that. So there is this kind of tension, I think, between activist movements and what uh, Mary Baker Eddy is trying to achieve. But what Dr. Voorhees is, is pointing out, though, is that she still very much admired Willard. So I think an interesting thing to kind of pull out in this conversation 
is the difference between sort of substance and style, if you will, between Willard and, and Eddie. I mean, Willard, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but she is always advocating being Christ-like. It, Absolutely. It um, Absolutely. So Eddie's statement there, I think, is provocative. It asks a question that I think a lot of scholars have been engaging with who are interested in, in Eddie. It's something that we're probing through our project here, the Mary Baker Eddy Papers Project at the uh, Mary Baker Eddy Library, and that is the nature of Mary Baker Eddy's involvement with the political movements of her time. And it sort of asks, you know, was Eddy apolitical, or did she see politics having meaning and having a place in her Christian mission? So I'd ask you, Chris— in terms of Willard, is she a Christian first or an activist first? Well, I, I think for Willard, they were kind of inseparable, okay. Jonathan. I, the interesting thing is, you're, as you were talking about Eddie and, and the reticence, be wary of how you agitate or right. that's, that's not embodying Christ. Willard was just the opposite on that because she wanted women to agitate. Mm-hmm. One of her mottos towards women in the WCTU was the threefold emphasis on agitate, educate, organize. Mm-hmm. The idea that if you're going to create a movement, you have to be heard. Now, the difference is, and this is where I think Willard can be distinguished, say, from someone like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who agitated in a way that in some way was out to provoke. Willard wanted to get the attention of men Mm -hmm. and wanted to be able to create a platform by which she and other women in partnership with with men could go about making change. But they wanted to do it in a dignified way, but also in a way that you didn't ease up on making your demands and your voice heard. But I think in Willard's case, she was very much part of what I've characterized as part of the social gospel movement that was very prominent in American Protestantism in the late 19th century. And it really was a belief in some way in in the kind of public role of Jesus. So in some ways, I think that's a, a difference from Willard in terms of strategy, whereas Eddie would have seen the idea of reform based in some way on the individual or predicated on the idea of an individual who has experienced the full truth of Christianity and then can see the avenues of how you can build a just society. Willard tended to, I think, put the two together, believe that social change certainly comes about, particularly if you're talking about people of faith who are converted or have some sense of the Spirit working in their lives, but it takes activism. And that's where I think Willard went further in the way that she dipped into politics and became involved very heavily in in the efforts to try to build a third party, a movement that was called the Prohibition Party in the late 19th century. And Willard was one of the leaders. The The interesting thing, though, is, and this is where I think there would have been women in the WCTU who probably would have agreed with Eddie, because one of the common criticisms of Willard was oftentimes from, from men as well as women who would say, well, 
if you're involved in politics, aren't you somehow watering down the force of your moral voice? Mm-hmm. The, the other side of that, of course, was for many men particularly, to be a woman in politics was to be very unladylike. And that was very, very contentious. I want to mention something, though, that I think is also important to this conversation. And this is where I think there's a definite linkage between Eddie and Willard. I think they both shared a relative disdain for Calvinism. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. They, they uh, different backgrounds growing up, but Willard was nurtured in in a kind of religious atmosphere, and some of this comes out of her Methodism, but also it was a very dominant religious current. I think in a lot of religious movements in the 19th century, but the emphasis on perfectionism. The idea that that you had a choice to either accept the grace that God gave you or to turn away from it. It wasn't preordained by a sovereign, judgmental God, mm-hmm. but grace came from, from a God of love who, who wanted you to become more Christ-like and develop a more holistic, God-centered consciousness. So, Eddie very much believed in the idea that part of being a Christian was that the goal was you were going to grow in your knowledge of God, you were going to become more Christ-like in your love of God and neighbor, but it was going to be manifested in some way in the ability to really, in some way, live a sinless life. This was very much what I would call a lingua franca of 19th century Christianity, particularly among a number of different Protestant churches and and sects of that time. And for all the differences between Eddie and Willard, I think they drank of those waters. I think that is something that does unite them. Theirs was not a God of stern judgment, Mm -hmm. but in Mm -hmm. some way a a God of love who wanted to see people improve themselves and grow in knowledge. You know, what you're saying, Chris, is making me think of that letter in our collection where Mary Baker Eddy is reaching out to her student, John Linscott, um, to see if maybe Frances Willard could lecture on Christian science for her. You know, to me, that strongly suggests that Eddy saw something special in Willard where she would have confidence that, you know, coming out of that sort of progressive Christianity that was informing Willard's work, that, you know, she could be an able recruit, you know, mm-hmm. to speak on, on Christian science. You know, I'd love to read from the letter. Uh, it's dated August 11th, 1887, and it begins this way, quote, My dear student, I've been helping you for quite a little time. Now I want you to help me, and this is how. Send me, for my primary class, one woman or a dozen women, 30 or 40 years old, who have good school educations and would make ready speakers and good teachers for me to qualify for the lecture field. Eddie goes on, quote, I must have one woman lecture. I need hundreds, but have not one who is loyal to Christian science. Now, do help me to do this. Take any amount of time to do it in, and I will repay it. Get Mrs. Willard, if you can, by working sufficiently for it. Ask Miss Ellen B. to help you in doing this. Ellen B. is is Lynn Scott's wife. So I don't think, um, you know, Chris, that anything ultimately came out of this. But, you know, it's so, so interesting to think that Willard, 
you know, was on uh, Mary Bakerty's mind as somebody who could assist. I think that's so fascinating. And it kind of shows um, where Christian science lecturing was at at that time. It was, mm. you know, she was developing it still very new in a way. Yeah. Um, but Chris, when you hear about this outreach from from Eddie to Willard to be a potential lecturer, what comes to mind for you? The two women had correspondences with one another. Mm-hmm. And uh, Eddie actually gave uh, donations to the WCTU. I saw uh, letters in the Willard archives that right. where I, I can't remember how much money Eddie gave, but they're very short, very laudatory uh, right. correspondences. But I, I think Eddie understood the kind of charisma that Willard had. And Mm -hmm. I think she understood by that point, particularly by the late 1880s, that Willard was sympathetic to Christian science in terms of some of its ideas. Willard was, was attracted to any religious idea. Certainly, if it was connected to a woman, it would draw her attention. But I think it's also a reflection of a kind of 19th century, late 19th century orientation towards religion. I don't want to say it was necessarily less dogmatic because clearly in that time you had had a lot of fights going on in churches over doctrine. But it was very much the sense that there was an openness to new religious ideas, particularly, I think, for Willard, if it led to what she referred to in in one of her comments about Christian science, a less materialistic way of looking at the world. She said, I think one of the passages that she used quite frequently about Christian science was, anything that drowns out the material in the world. Hmm. And part of it, again, was just looking at industrialization, the kind of problems of uh, wealth inequality, the the so-called Gilded Age that in some way was the backdrop for both Willard and Eddie. But Willard just said, you know, anything that gets you focused on the Spirit of God and away from sort of the laws of, of humanity is, is going to be a good thing because that's what our age really needs. We know that there are instances where they talk about each other. They talk about each other's work. What do we know about the direct interactions that they had with each other there well, I, that we know? I, I think most of it was through correspondence. I don't know if they ever met. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't find any evidence that they had actually met. Well, they, they almost met, mm-hmm. according <laughs> okay. to this one letter that we have in the collection. Mm-hmm. This is on WCTU um, letterhead. And, and this indicates that at this point, She's identifying as being vice president of the Women's uh, Christian Temperance Uni- uh, Union. Uh, the president is Mrs. Margaret Lucas. Okay, of that's the world's WCTU. Oh, okay, that's yep. the world's. Yep. Okay, yeah. So it's dated October thirtieth, eighteen eighty-four, and um, this is uh, Francis Willard writing to Mary Baker Eddy. Starts by thanking her for her donation, but then she writes, "I was so overwhelmed with work in Boston." that I could go nowhere. So she, she's essentially saying she regrets that she wasn't able to make what they were hoping to have as a meeting. She'll hope to see you ere long, 
<laughs> so there, there was the intention and the, yes, the desire. Yeah. That would have been a very interesting conversation. Yeah, and thinking about them in conversation with each other it actually makes me go back to what you were saying earlier about the lingua franca of the time, the religious vocabulary of the time, and something that Jonathan had found uh, and shared with me when we were preparing for this episode is that in the Christian Science periodicals, the Christian Science Journal and the Christian Science Sentinel, Francis Willard actually is quoted sometimes. And in uh, this one from 1901, for instance, we've got a, a page of notices, various announcements to church members, and then at the bottom there's a little bit of extra space. And so as as a bit of filler, they might put a quote from somebody who was well-known or an idea of interest that they thought readers would enjoy. And here they've got this one from Francis Willard. And just hearing it, I hear these connections to to Christian science. And let me read that quote. It says, It is not learning, nor eloquence, nor generosity, nor insight, nor the tidal rush of impassioned feeling, which will most effectually turn the dark places in men's hearts to light, but that enkindling and transforming temper, which forever sees in humanity not that which is bad and hateful, but that which is lovable and improvable, which can both discern and effectually speak to that nobler longing of the soul, which is the indestructible image of its maker." It is this, this enduring belief in the redeemable qualities of the vilest manhood, which is the most potent spell in the ministry of Christ. I hear this resonance with ideas from Christian science, and I wonder how common it was to think about Christianity in the terms that she's describing, or if that's unique, but I find the connection really interesting. And clearly the editors of the Sentinel and Journal at the time thought there was a connection, too, that would be interesting to readers. And I think what Willard represents, too, in that quote is an interesting reflection of of a number of currents of, of 19th century religion mm-hmm. that were all striving in some way for a an emphasis on the experiential aspects of faith. Mm-hmm. So we've had this great conversation about the historical importance of these women, the importance during their day to each other, how do the trends of thought that were important to them and the the things they were putting out there continue? And where do we see dimensions of their legacies in social movements and attitudes today? It's interesting when we do a Seekers and Scholars episode, how sort of things align in the universe with it uh, outside of the episode itself. Um, Recently in the Christian Science Monitor magazine, they published an article titled, Sober as a College Student, Gen Z Shrugs at Alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know, Chris, you've written on the, on the same subject. It seems there is this kind of new enthusiasm for sobriety um, with this generation. It was a tonic, if you will, you know, to, mm-hmm. to read this, this article. But I, I, what are your thoughts? Um, oh, I, I think you're right, Jonathan. And I think that, that part of the idea of what is oftentimes called sober, curious movements they're not necessarily focused on sort of the legalized prohibition that that Willard and others were striving for, but how does abstinence from alcohol promote a healthy lifestyle? Mm -hmm. But I think for younger generations, it reflects a kind of realism and it reflects the kind of realities that they face where they're facing a very uncertain future. When you look at political events, when you look at some of the economic instability that younger generations 
face, I do think that the the kind of turn towards these movements that kind of encourage abstinence are a reflection of a much more realistic way of how do you take on life with a mind that is not necessarily clouded with with drugs and alcohol. It's so interesting to think about what's going on today with a younger generation and then to kind of flip back in time and, you know, wonder about Mary Baker Eddy as she was growing up, as she was dealing with these issues herself, and uh, what it meant for her to first engage with temperance as a young person. And then, you know, to see how temperance really has a significant role for her in the practice of Christian science. I'll quote again from Verhees' book on this subject. She goes back to a time in Eddie's life when she's growing up in New Hampshire, in Sanborton, New Hampshire, attending the Sanborton Congregational Church. And so she writes, quote, In 1833, the Sanborton Church's Officer of Discipline published a resolution to exclude or censure any member who traffics in or manufactures ardent spirits, The same year, a few states to the West, Joseph Smith codified temperance for Mormons in his Doctrine and Covenants. Mary Baker Eddy would later become the only other American religious founder to invoke this standard for adherence, though she would describe it in her church's textbook rather than its rule book. So I think there are sort of echoes uh, between... Eddie's experience as a young person around alcohol and, you know, maybe what people are thinking about today. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating time to be talking about this because it is resonating with this generation, this new generation in interesting ways. Very much so. It'll be interesting to see how that continues in our culture. Well, thank you both so much for being in conversation with us. Jonathan Eater, thanks for being a guest today. Yeah, I feel like we're just sort of starting to get into it. You know, there's so much about Mary Baker Eddy, the other social movements that are going on there, how she's negotiating them, and how her followers are negotiating it. It's it's a rich area, and um, we have a lot, you know, here at, in our collections to kind of contribute to those subject areas. Yeah. I would just add very briefly that I think both Willard and Eddy, for their differences— They reflect a cloud of witnesses Mm -hmm. of women in the past who were animated by visions of what faith could do to create a better way of life. And there are certainly important differences and distinctions, but I think what you see with them is this idea of how faith makes possible the realization of a better world. And I think part of Willard's lasting legacy is that she represents a woman who, in a lot of respects, didn't live to see the things achieved that she worked for. But she served as an important model and a bridge to a lot of later movements in the 20th century, both in terms of religion and as well as in the the more secular realm towards working towards a better world, the creation of a more just, holistic world and a better community for people to to find ways to get along in in peace and harmony. Mm, that's beautiful. It's it's made me interested in learning more about her life. Thank so, you. So, Chris, Christopher Evans, thank you for being with us thank today. Thank you so much, Krista. It's a pleasure to be a part of this conversation. Mm-hmm. Yes, and thank you so much, too, Krista, for hosting this episode of Seekers and Scholars. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Seekers and Scholars on Francis Willard, 
Mary Baker Eddy, and Christian social reform. Part of the episode looked at how the issues faced by Willard and Eddy over 100 years ago continue to be of consequence in society today. A great source for us at Seekers and Scholars in seeing how the historical connects with the contemporary is the Christian Science Monitor news source. In this episode, we noted a recent Monitor article on a new enthusiasm for sobriety among today's young adults. You can find a link to that article on the Mary Baker Eddy Library website page for Seekers and Scholars. By the way, the Monitor has podcasts, too, including the Monitor Daily and Why We Wrote This. They're an excellent way for you to sample the news through the inspired and penetrating lens of Monitor journalism. We hope you'll join us for upcoming episodes of Seekers and Scholars. In one, we'll be looking at the stories of Jeannie Dove and Dorothy Mobani, two pioneering black African practitioners of Christian science healing, and what their experiences reveal about the larger landscape of Christian women in religion in sub-Saharan Africa. In another, we'll be exploring what the practice of animal magnetism meant in 19th and early 20th century America. Animal magnetism was a key concern for Mary Baker Eddy and a major interest for many of her contemporaries. I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you for listening to Seekers and Scholars. This podcast was produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2024.